0: Everyone, thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. We hope that you find encouragement today as you listen. This morning, uh, I would like for us to go to Bethlehem to search for Jesus. But I guess after seeing that amazing video there and the first week of Advent, which is if we had an Advent wreath, we would be lighting the candle of hope. Uh, I think we can go to Bethlehem this morning to. Uh, uh, to discover hope, and uh, now this isn't going to be your typical Bethlehem message. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do something a little bit different with it. So you're going to have to hang close with me, and we'll go look at some scriptures. But um, just just by way of introduction, if you were to go to Israel today, there's still a Bethlehem, and there's a Jerusalem, just like there was 2,000 years ago. In fact, Bethlehem's about five miles south, almost directly south of, of Jerusalem, and uh, and and the one of the world's very oldest churches is in Bethlehem because Constantine's mother went there and tried to look for the place of Jesus' birth and found a cave and built a church over it. So you can still go to that location today. It was burned down, I think, by the Samaritans in AD 500, and then they rebuilt it. And, you know, you have all that went on there in the Holy Land and, you know, the uh, the Crusades, etc. cetera. But anyway, it's still there, and they've, it, it's in existence. And uh, Debbie and I are Traveling to Israel this spring for the first time, we're going to go on a trip uh, with, uh, with some pastors and friends, and uh, I think about 60 or 80 of us will be attending, and we're going to spend, from what I understand, a couple days in Bethlehem, and uh, going to hang out with uh, um, Christians uh, there, uh, Arab Christians, and there's a Bible college in, in Bethlehem, and uh, uh, Christians are a very vast majority, a minority these days but we're going to have a good time, and I will take pictures and bring them back for next Christmas, okay? First-hand pictures of the church, but uh, let's look for hope this morning, and I just want to pray before we begin. Lord, I just ask you to bless, our, uh, bless your word as you always do. Holy Spirit, come and visit us and speak to us and through us as we look to your, your, your precious word today, and, uh, and cause it to come alive in our hearts, Lord. We're so grateful for this season that we call Advent, and uh, these weeks that lead up to the great visitation, the great historical visitation of God to our planet in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray and ask your blessing. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's do this. Let's go back. If you were to look in your concordance, uh, just look up the word Bethlehem, you'd probably find about 55 scriptures from the Old and New Testament, most of them in the Old Testament. And I want to look at three areas and three, three uh, search results that we find in Bethlehem that we can make application because it points to who Jesus is in our lives in a very valuable way today, okay? And the first scripture, it starts in Ruth. If you remember our story uh, last year, uh, we hung out in Ruth for a little bit. It says in ch- verse one of chapter one, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Now, you know the story. Maybe you don't know the story, but here's what happens. There's this famine in that region there of Israel. Moab is just to the east, probably not all that far, but it is a different country. Uh, Israel's kind of long and skinny, not real long, but skinny. And Moab was oftentimes shows up in the scripture as an enemy of Israel, but they go over this family and they they make their residence in, in Moab and the sons marry Moabite women, and then crisis happens. The father and the two sons perish. They, they die. Really kind of a sad story. So now Naomi, the uh, mother of the two sons, and obviously the, the wife of the husband, uh, they, uh, she's there with two widowed uh, daughter-in-laws, so three widows. And so she decides that she's going to head back to Israel, back to Israel her homeland, back to Bethlehem, where the family has property, and uh, I imagine the drought has ended, but probably nothing compares to their emotional and the drought of their soul after the loss of their loved ones. And so they start to go, and one of the daughter-in-laws drops off, and it's just Naomi and Ruth, and they return to Bethlehem, and, um, and here's what we see in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, and her husband is Elimelech, Limelech. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, he's passed. So here's a, a relative. I don't know how distant, but he, he is a relative. And, uh, and, and Boaz of Bethlehem is wealthy, and he's honorable, and uh, he's, he's, he's of the tribe of Judah, and he, he's a relative, again, of, of Naomi's husband. He was kin, okay? And an Israelite could sell in that time, and in in, you can see in the Old Testament and the Levitical law, if you came upon hard times, and by the way, Naomi and Ruth are not going back to good times. They are going back to probably abject poverty. They're going back to very difficult situations. They've, they've lost their husbands, and, and they're going back probably just, they don't even know how they're going to survive. And in that time, in the Old Testament law, you could sell yourself as an indentured servant. You could sell your land, you could sell your family even to try to uh, work your way out of or survive. I think Ruth and Naomi were in survival mode at this time. It was that bad, all right? Ruth, it's kind of a cool thing, we, uh, we've talked about this, but her, her statement and her commitment to her mother-in-law, now, this is her mother-in-law, I don't know how you are with your mother-in-laws, uh, My mother-in-law is wonderful. I'm sorry if yours isn't, but sometimes we don't always get along with our mother-in-laws, but but it's really cool what Ruth says. She says, you know what? Your God is gonna be my God, because the Moabites didn't worship the God of Israel. Your people are gonna be my people. Basically, wherever you go, I'm gonna shadow you. I'm gonna be with you, and it's really a cool picture, and it shows up in our wedding ceremonies a lot. You may have read it to your your significant fiance at the time of your wedding. Your God shall be my God. Your people should be my people. Wherever you goest, I'll goest, you know, that type of thing. And uh, so this is, uh, this is a really a beautiful picture. And now this man shows up, and he's a, he's a relative. He's a kin. <clears throat> he's related. And, um, and, and Israelite could like I said, they could sell themselves to try to get out of debt. So that's where they're at right now. They're, they're probably thinking, how am I going to escape poverty, this, these two women, these two widows? Um, but however, if your relative or next of kin was financially able, he could by law purchase the land so as to keep it within the, the clan or the family and also protect the family. So what Ruth and Naomi needed was a kin, a relative to redeem them. It was called at that time a kinsman Redeemer, and that's what was, was was needed, and they were desperate, and uh, and if you read through Ruth, it's not that long of a a, a book. It's a beautiful story. I mean, it, you know, if, if Hallmark was smart, they would they would just turn into a Christmas special because it's really loaded with a beautiful, beautiful things and 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 and, and wonderful uh, 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 romance potentially, as well as uh, as uh, just uh, uh, just I don't know, just chivalry. And and kindness and generosity. So, um, uh, Boaz of Bethlehem became this kinsman redeemer. There was another one in line, but he sat with him outside the gate, called some witnesses, and he said, "Hey, listen, uh, you just need to know that you're first in line to buy this land uh, that you know was a part of Naomi's family or husband." Uh, and the guy goes, "Oh yeah, sure, no deal. I'll." I'll, I'll probably get 50 cents on the dollar or whatever. And then Boaz says, and by the way, you've got to marry the widow Ruth as well. And the guy goes, ah, ah, that could mess up my mojo. And so he backs out of the deal and Boaz uh, steps in and not only buys the land, but marries Ruth and, uh, and, and the rest is, uh, is biblical history. It's such a beautiful picture because uh, Boaz not only rescued Ruth, but he rescued Ruth's mother in law from slavery and poverty and ruin. And that's what a redeemer did in the Old Testament. And it's a really cool picture. In fact, this is, God is kind of seen as a kinsman or redeemer in the Old Testament. And specifically, when you think of the story of the Exodus, you know, when people 400 years enslaved in Egypt and they needed a redeemer, they needed to be freed from slavery. From bondage. They needed to get out of this, uh, of this burden and have this yoke broken uh, from them. And here's what David would say in a prayer uh, years later about, about Israel and thanking God for what he had done there at, uh, at the Exodus. He says, "'How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There's no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your people?' So there's that picture that the God that we see throughout the Old Testament, he's a redeemer, he's one that comes in. And he he not only redeems, but he adopts and he brings family. You can just see, you know, uh, Boaz is almost a a, a picture of of what God was doing, had done for Israel and his, his ongoing love and care and graciousness towards Israel. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the one who redeems us from the power of sin okay? So we've been in the Gospel of John. If you remember, the, the woman uh, caught in adultery in John chapter 8. As it, as it progresses in the Scripture, he always brings a teaching. After that, John reveals the teaching that Jesus gives, and that's where we get that first statement, I am the light of the world. It also shows up a chapter or so later, the blind man. But here, just after the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. And as that whole passage progresses, um, you, you, you see that Jesus begins to talk about uh, uh, the, the truth that, that, that he is. And in verse, uh, verse 32 of chapter 8, he, he talks about uh, what discipleship looks like. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, he says, and the truth will set you free. And those who were listening to Jesus that day, they said, well, hold it. Uh, uh, what do you mean knowing the truth set us free? And then they make this crazy statement. They said, but we are descendants of Abraham. Uh, never, we've never been slaves to anyone. And I'm thinking, what in the world are they talking about? These, these people are just stopping at Abraham because Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons. And early in the story they're in Egypt, to escape famine, and then 400 years later, they enslaved, and in bondage, they, they, they find God as their redeemer. So this, that, that just, that perplexes me. I mean, they were just bad theologians that day with Jesus, and they're saying, we're, we're sons and descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. And, uh, and what do you mean you will set us free? And that's where Jesus uh, makes this statement. And look at it in verse 34, 35 of chapter 8 of John. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. And look at this scripture. We've quoted it through the years. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. He who the son sets free is, there you go. You all memorized it, or you're gonna memorize it after today. He who the son sets free is free indeed. Yeah. And And the conversation and kind of the wrestling match that's going on that day, in Israel with Jesus and the religious elite and the crowds, they're, they're trying to figure out who he is. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just, I'm just not a teacher or a rabbi. I'm the son and I'm the son of the creator. He's already been clear, I am the creator. You know, cause it's, a, it's, it's like we can't understand in the, in the beauty and the mystery of the Trinity. Here's Jesus saying, I'm the one that brings freedom. I'm your kinsman redeemer. I'm the one that sets you free from not necessarily physical bondage and, and, and shackles of, of, uh, of those you've sold yourself into slavery or those who've come in and taken you into slavery, but that, that slave, or I should say that slave master of sin and that slave master that, that we, 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 we taste of it. And the next thing you know, we're trapped in it. We can't get out. And, and it's a heavy yoke to carry. And Jesus says, uh, he who the son sets free is going to experience real Real freedom uh, and so uh, that's what that's this, that's this beautiful scripture now Peter, I like how the apostle peter, you know the the real uh, boisterous you know put your foot in your mouth, Peter, and just long enough to take it out and put the other one in and but, but he was a great guy and he was bold and he was brash, and he was kind of always getting in trouble but once once he got through his his uh his spiritual adolescence, and he began to grow in. He became a great leader in the first church, and he wrote these a couple of these letters, um, uh, First and Second Peter. And, and look what look what it says in First Peter chapter one, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. You know what we've all inherited through sin. Now, I'm not blaming. I'm not. This isn't coming down on our uncles and aunts. Some of you came to Christ because your parents encountered Christ in the gospel. What Peter's saying is you know, he's writing to probably a Jewish audience and he's saying, we've we just been caught in this cycle of sin and bondage, all right? And, and it, it, it was not paid with mere gold or silver, this, this, this ransom, all right, uh, which, which loses its value. It was the precious blood of, of Christ, the sinless and spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now look at this, now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So what's that say? Jesus is that redeemer. The the redeemer of Bethlehem wasn't just Boaz, but it was a picture of a future redeemer that would would touch all of mankind. Jesus Christ. Jesus is that redeemer. Hebrews in chapter 2 of the New Testament book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus uh, calling those who he's redeemed as his brothers and sisters, okay? So, uh, there you get it. It takes a relative to redeem us. It's clear through the cross that if you've if, if you've submitted to Jesus and His Lordship, if you're following Him, you've been brought into His family. He calls you brother. He calls you sister. And when He's got the authority, and He does, to bring redemption, He can do so. He is He is our Redeemer. Okay. So let's just keep moving along here uh, as as we continue to hang out in Bethlehem this morning. Uh, fast forward a couple of generations, Ruth encounters this wonderful man, Boaz, wealthy, buys up the land, marries him, and she's able to bear children. And, and, and Ruth and Boaz have a, a child, and that child's name is Obed, all right? And then Obed has a, a, a son, and his name is Jesse. And that enters this next story, our Bethlehem story in 1 Samuel Oh, there it is. Jesus is the Redeemer. I just wanted, in case you missed that in your notes, okay? Uh, 1 Samuel 16. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel Samuel's just super prophet in Israel. He says, you have mourned long enough for Saul. Saul was the first king in Israel, and he looked the part. He was big. He was ruddy. He was strong, kind of handsome, but he's messed up, okay? And so this prophet and much of Israel is mourning because Saul just keeps screwing up. And, uh, and, and the Lord says, I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with, with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. We're back in Bethlehem again. And now we're searching for a king. You know the story. Oh, it's one of our favorites, isn't it? Uh, Samuel arrives in Bethlehem and this first, is. The first son he sees is Eliab and he's oldest, he's strongest, he's probably the smartest. And, and he says, surely, Lord, this must be, uh, this must be the, the, the young man to be anointed or this must be your anointed. Uh, but the Lord warns Samuel at that point, and He says, don't be seduced by sight. He didn't say it that way, I said it that way. Don't be seduced by his stature and his strength and his suave and his, you know, his, his mojo and how he can, mo- don't, let, he says, Man looks at the outward appearance. Man looks at how cool and how well you dress and how many degrees you have after your name, but, but, but the Lord said, I look at the heart. God, the Lord looks at the heart, the human heart, the heart of a man, the heart of a woman. So Jesse had another son, Abinadab, step forward. Nope, he had Shemiah, Nadah. All seven sons stand before the elderly prophet, but no go, something's wrong. That's they've exhausted apparently all the sons. And the, and the prophet says, is this it? I mean, yeah, they look good, they look good on the outside, but God's not giving me the green light on any of them. Something's wrong here. He said, are there any other sons that you have? And this is what Jesse says, the grandson of Boaz, There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. And Samuel says, send for him at once. Uh, We're not going to sit down uh, to eat until he arrives. So they waited. They, they, They paused everything. And in comes David, smelling like sheep and all the things that sheep do. And the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one anoint him, and Samuel stood up, and he anointed David. And back then, anointing, you know, if you've ever been anointed with oil for prayer, we do that sometimes here. You just get a little dab, and you put on the head, and you pray for somebody, and, and uh, we kind of see that in the New Testament. You know, if they're sick among you, pray for them, and anoint them with oil. The elders anoint them with oil, and pray the prayer of faith, and they'll be recovered. So we do that sometimes. But let me tell you something. That, this isn't that kind of anointing. From what I understand, anointing in that place, in that time, it wasn't a dab, it was a pour. And I believe that sacred oil was poured over David's head. And, and it, was, uh, it was, I think, symbolic of that moment because the scripture says, and David was filled with the spirit of God. I like that, that imagery that we see in the Old Testament. The oil, the sacred oil is, is, is a picture of the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God being released. And in that time, it was released on a shepherd boy. And of course, the rest is history because before long, we see David Taking meals to his brothers, he didn't become king right then. There was a journey, but the Lord began to increase his reputation. It started with taking out a really big giant named Goliath. Okay, um, uh, and so David, uh, uh, David continued. I, I, I just a little side note: David would become the greatest king of Israel. You know, even to this day, people would still recognize in their history. There's nobody quite like David. And uh, but uh, deep into his, his kingship there came a time when he's hiding out in a cave in, in Adullam, which is kind of, I think, kind of south of Bethlehem, if I'm correct. And, uh, and uh, he's got these mighty men. He's got like 30 of them. And there's three of them there that day. And David, the Philistines, are kind of encamped near Bethlehem. And, uh, and that's frustrating him because that's his hometown. And he's just, he's thirsty. And he's longing for a drink from the well of Bethlehem. And these three mighty men said, no problem, David, your wish is our command. And they go in there and they basically go crazy and, and get it just for a drink of water. It doesn't, I don't think the scriptures tell us if I was looking at how many lives were lost, but it, was, it wasn't pretty to get through the stronghold in order to get water. And they brought it back to their king. And then David said, no, oh, I can't drink this. Uh, it was blood. There was blood involved in that. And those poor guys, they... Uh, they were just trying to take care of David, but I think that's kind of interesting that no matter where we, you, you can take the, the shepherd king out of Bethlehem, but you can't take Bethlehem out of the shepherd king. And so we, we just continue here because I think it's, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter two, uh, verses one and two, and this is a our, our, our lovely Christmas uh, uh, verse that we come across and we'll probably read again before the season's over. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, uh, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, We saw his star and it rose and and, and we've come to worship him. Okay, so these are wise men, magi. We don't know exactly what they are, but we know they came from the east, maybe over near um, uh, ancient Babylon where Israel had spent uh, at least 70 years, uh, a good portion of 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 those from Jerusalem. And uh, and so we don't know, but we just know that they they saw something and they were following this this supernatural event in the the sky and they come to Jerusalem. Now, uh, Herod's the wrong guy to ask. He is really wigged out. Herod is a messed up king. In fact, he's a puppet king. He's not even Jewish. He was placed in there by Rome. Um, He did a lot of creative building and stuff throughout Israel, which is impressive, but he was a disturbed man. Uh, He killed his sons. He killed his wife. He killed his other wife. He he just he just get he just paranoid, and uh, and uh, in fact, uh, tradition tells us that he literally uh, filled up the the jails and the prisons as he got close to death around Jerusalem, uh, and and he had ordered that when he died to. To execute the people, I think they were like scribes and religious, important people, so that then Israel would be mourning because they realized nobody's going to mourn his death. And uh, I, I've seen that, and I'm, I'm not sure it actually happened. Some say that uh, they were released and they they weren't uh, they weren't killed. But this guy, point being, he was really messed up, wasn't he, Herod? And uh, and 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 you can see what's happening. Uh, uh, he's he's disturbed, and it says all of. Uh, Jerusalem is disturbed, and they're trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, uh, this is bigger than just a birthday party because it's believed at this point Jesus may have been a couple years old. Um, but uh, they're coming to and trying to figure out where he is. This you know this this thing in the sky, this star, or this supernatural thing is going. It's kind of kind of come around within five miles, and that's where they call the religious. Leaders and the religious leaders say, Oh, well, we know where the Messiah is supposed to be born this king, this king above every king. And it uh, comes right out of Micah in the Old Testament, six, seven hundred years earlier at least. This, this prophet makes this statement amidst his small little prophetic book. He says, But you, Bethlehem of Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old from ancient times. Now that sounds bigger than just somebody being born. Origins of old and ancient. That sounds like John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created by God. A preexistent king would come one day. And uh, uh, pointing of, of ancient times. Then verse four says this, look at this. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely, for, uh, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So this is a king that's bigger than Ju- Judah or bigger than uh, Israel, but literally uh, a worldwide scope of authority and leadership. This is speaking of, of a Messiah, a messianic type of a person. And so that's what the leaders in Israel told Herod that day. And, and, uh, and so uh, they went down to Bethlehem and uh, we won't tell you the rest of the story. We'll save that for another week, okay? Because uh, we don't want to give too much of Christmas away. It's only the first week of Advent, okay? Uh, but according to the prophet, he was to be born in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, I kind of like that. It's, uh, I saw that here. He's, he's going to shepherd his flocks. He's this ruler and this, this mega king shepherding his flocks. And I, it reminded me of what we just looked at. There's this shepherd boy who was called off the, out of the hillside or off uh, from, from the sheep on, and on the hillside where they probably were. It's a very hilly area there in Bethlehem. And David came in and he was anointed king as a shepherd. And David continued to shepherd Israel in a beautiful way. He wasn't just a king, but he, he led. And we talked about this last week. He led with a heart of compassion and care as a good shepherd will. And now some years later, the prophet Micah is talking about a messianic, king of all kings who will come and he will rule and his scope will be more than Israel. It'll be worldwide rulership and he will be a shepherd ruler, a shepherd king. I like what the apostle Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians, um, talking about Jesus, the suffering servant, and we should act like him who came. And though he was God, he became a servant. He became a servant of servants. And then look at the end of it, it says, therefore God exalted this servant Christ God And gave him the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's who Jesus, this shepherd king of Bethlehem, is. He came as a humble servant all the way to the point of the cross, if you read there in Philippians chapter 2. and therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So why am I saying that? Because uh, Jesus is the, the king of kings. David was a great king born in Bethlehem. Boaz was a wonderful redeemer. But Jesus is the redeemer of all redeemers, and he's the king of all kings. And I, I'm saying that because today, this morning, he is worthy of my worship. He is worthy of my love. He's worthy of my heart. He is worthy as King of Kings of my loyalty and my submission and my surrender because he is the King of all kings. Okay, I'll be honest. Last night, I after the football game, I had a lot of adrenaline in my... I was in my house watching it. I wasn't in Minnesota. My, my brother-in-law wanted to buy a ticket and have me up there, but I said, I have to preach on Sunday. I was, I was afraid anyway of the outcome. But it went well for Badger fans, okay? And so the adrenaline, sometimes the adrenaline is going, and I, I, it takes me a little bit to come down after I watch, if you've seen me watch a game or play a game, okay? All right, so uh, I'm, I'm flipping it, and Thor is on. And uh, the original Thor, where he gets exiled to Earth. And, and, uh, and I was watching his, I forget his brother's, his wicked brother's name. All right, I'm with, you're with me now, okay? So anyway, he's back at home base, right? And, and Thor's posse, those four folks that are really funny in the movie, they, they come up, and because Dad's in a comatose state, you know, the king, Thor's father, uh, then uh, Loki is, is leading, and they were submitting automatic because he was now king. Even though they, they didn't fully have the picture, they were kind of recognizing that this, something, something's wrong in this whole picture, but they were reverent, and they were respectful of his authority. Our problem here is we don't respect our authorities. As Americans, we can't climb inside the brain of a king and authority and followership, leadership, submission, right? Because it's like, vote the bum out. It's been two years. It's been four years. It's been six. That's just, that's how we work. It's kind of tragic, but I don't know if there's a better way to do it. We do it that way. Uh, but if you can pause for a moment and recognize when, when the king of all kings Who has authority over our our very breath? As John says in his prologue, in him and by him and through him, I guess that's the Apostle Paul, all things were created and, and for his pleasure. And it's like he's a righteous ruler, he's a righteous redeemer, he's the king of all kings. And it's almost like God, give us the revelation of how we can submit and give our heart to this king today because we're a republic we're a democracy, you know. Uh, we throw off governments just for fun, you know, or think we are. And, uh, and yet, this is a picture that the scriptures give us of who Jesus was and who this Jesus of Bethlehem is. So David was great, but Jesus is, is the king of all kings. So I invite the worship team to come up this morning. In closing, we find a redeemer Obviously, we find a king in Bethlehem. But there's one more thing that we discover. And I want you to see this. It's in Luke chapter 2. Again, uh, this is the story, the Christmas story, the days of Caesar Augustus. A decree was issued. You know it. You've you've quoted it sometimes. You've read it as kids. Uh, The Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is up in the Galilee area there. And so it it was probably a couple day ride. Mary was probably on a, on a donkey and going a, a distance there. And while she was traveling, uh, she, uh, she, her water broke. It was time for her to give birth or almost. I mean, it, she's feeling labor pains. All right. So she's very close to delivery. And so, but look at this. So Joseph went up from the, the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the Lord, or should I say the house of the line of David. So David is related hundreds of years later, uh, brought to Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus is born. That's why there's a church of the nativity there in Bethlehem still today. But you know what? And we know the story well, but we may forget that Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, You may have heard that. Maybe that's the first time you've heard it. It means house of bread, all right? And bread was an important part of the Jewish experience and worship life. In the temple, there were 12 uh, loaves that they called the the, uh, the showbread. And there was a table of showbread. And each week, those 12 loaves were baked. And at the end of the week, only the priests could eat them. And that showbread in the sacred temple represented God's uh, presence with His people. God's bread was very, very important. And then there was the feast, seven-day feast of unleavened Bread that, uh, that 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 reminded them of the urgency that they needed. Don't even put uh, yeast. There's no time for the bread to rise. We've got to get out of town. God has opened the door. Soon the sea will part. It's time to pack up and just take what you can and let's let's flee. Let's let's run to our rescue and to our deliverance. And I I, I see it and we see it that in that bread uh, the Israelites through their life even today I'm sure Jewish. Uh, uh, followers and Orthodox Jewish worshipers would recognize God's divine power in their lives and in their existence to to bring them to a place of of freedom. And then in the wilderness, they were fed supernaturally manna and and God's provision. So his presence, his His power and his provision. And then we were there a couple of weeks ago. In fact, last month at this time, first Sunday of the month, we, we talked about Jesus standing and saying, after he fed the 5,000, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. You think the manna was cool? I am literally the personification of, of life and sustenance and, um, and, and power and, and provision and presence. I've come down from, from heaven. I am the bread of, of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. And I want you to think about that this morning as we conclude. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, check out our website at www.ridway.church.